Dog Talk and Kitties too. I am Tracy Hodgner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. If you would like to hear episodes of this show you may have missed, please go to RadioPetLady.com and visit the podcast library. You can also listen to all the Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with pet experts, including Cat Chat, The Pet Cancer Vet, Good Dogs, the Expert Vet, Exotic Pets, Holistic Vets, Pet Food Advisors, Humane Talk, and Authors on Animals. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content, and is brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Precious Cat Litter, and Waruva, a privately owned pet food company named after the owner's rescued cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Their brands are Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen in Pouches, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brand, created for finicky felines and fussy little dogs. All their cans and pouches are made in a human food facility, which means that every ingredient is good enough for people to eat, if your kitty will share. I have a very interesting show for you today. I'm going to be talking to Becky, whose dog Mercedes is a doc dog competitor who got hurt. And we're going to talk to her. She's a veterinary technician about how to heal from injuries and go on to still be a great competitor. Then Monica Turin is going to be here. She's certified in thanatology. We're going to talk about the death and dying process with our pets. And you're going to be a little surprised about her advice. And then Amy Sadler, the wonderful trainer who's worked with Southampton Shelter and goes across the country with Play for Life. She's going to talk about what a behavior evaluation actually is and why we no longer are supposed to call it temperament testing. I'm going to say hi right off the, right off the bat to Becky and your beautiful boxer mix Mercedes. Hey, Becky, great to have you here. It's great to be here, Tracy. Thank you. Well, I was very excited to learn about this cool dog who was rambunctious. So I'd love you to first talk about what do we do when we get a rambunctious dog and how dock dogs or a similar high-energy, high-drive activity is really a wonderful a wonderful way to deal with that energy. You went on to, to compete in eight different states and make it to the world championships for Speed Retrieve Express Division. I don't know what that is, but it's sounds really intense in 2013. So so start us off by understanding a little about this beautiful girl and and how long it takes or how much money and time does it take to become a doc dog competitor? Can can many of us do it or is it kind of out of our reach? Well, I think it's something that pretty much anybody can do. It's fairly inexpensive compared to some of the other dog sports that are out there. And I'm actually from a horse background, so it's definitely a lot cheaper than doing something like that. Right. But it's it's good for anybody. There's a bunch of different dog breeds that are doing it. You can do it with any kind of dog. They don't discriminate against anything. Nice. So, you know, anybody can go out and do it. So we've had a lot of fun with it. And and when you go to the eight states, when you when you do dog dog competitions, I know this is true in agility at the very high level you're at. It's kind of a a traveling circus like horse shows are, but without that massive amount of money, 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 money. And it's kind of a community. You're you you all care about each other's dogs. You know them you kind of root for each other it's a it's a pleasant kind of a group activity is that true or is that just my imagination 
Oh, no, absolutely. I have met some of my best friends through dog dogs. Um, the animal people in general to me are just really great people and dog people, too, that do this sport. We all really go out there and root for each other and yes. support each other. And even though we're competing against each other, we really feel like a team unit. So we, we're all pulling for each other. And it's really neat because you get to meet people from across different states. So anywhere that I go, I can go to a bunch of different states and I have friends that I can visit and people that I can see and it also gives me the chance to see a lot of what's out there, different environments in different states. And nice for a dog like Mercedes, who now gets to meet many other dogs. I mean, what better socialization? You get to go and you get to do the sport you love, and then you're hanging out with all kinds of other dogs. It's It's got to be great for the dogs, too. It's very great for the dogs. We have a, a pretty good group of core people here in Knoxville that we've met through Doc Dogs, and we go out hiking with them. Nice. We do all kinds of other things with each other. So we've gotten to be pretty close, and the dogs have gotten to be pretty close, too. And they all, you know, they all have their little quirks. And yes. And stay along, kind of like brothers and sisters. Yeah, they squabble while, sometimes, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah, but it's, it's great, and it's, it's really made it a lot of fun more enjoyable and you know it's definitely added something to my relationship with her too nice and so and therefore a great um suggestion to anyone who wants to put their foot in it it's a very welcoming sport so if you wanted to try as a beginner a novice i'm there the people that are further along in the ladder i think are very inclusive and and encouraging you're a veterinary technician in the intensive care unit at university of tennessee veterinary teaching hospital which i have had the pleasure of visiting when i was down in knoxville and Donna Radatich and, and some of the other great vets um, that are part of your program have come on the show. You have a quite extraordinary underwater treadmill there, which I, was the first time I had seen it. They used it to take a massive amount of weight off of a beagle who I think became famous for being obese. But you discovered that Mercedes had had a muscle tear or strain. Talk about how you discovered that, because I don't know how the rest of us would find that. I guess our dogs would limp. In her case, she had a previous personal best of a long jump into the water in the dock dogs, and, and her personal best was, was becoming less good, right? Yeah, actually, we, we were doing really well by the end of last season up until October when we had gone to an event in Charlotte, North Carolina, and her jumps were becoming progressively shorter, which is just kind of backwards. Usually as we progress through the weekend right. at an event, they get longer instead of shorter. And she's very, very stoic, so it was really difficult for me to figure out what exactly was going on. But you know how animal owners are. Once you live with a dog for a long period yes. of time, you, you pick up on those little subtle things. So I ended up taking her to work with me when I got back from that event that weekend and we figured out that she had an ellipsilla strain which is the muscle that runs from the lumbar spine down to the inside of the hip. How do you discover that that's the strain? How would how would the rest of us have our vet find that out? You have to go to a fancy orthopedic department or how do you find that out? Is it ultrasound or what? No, we actually didn't have to do an ultrasound. Even though she's, she's very stoic, we were able to palpate. So just putting your hands on the dog and feeling around and pushing on each muscle and any veterinarian is, is trained to do that. Okay. They all know how to how to do that kind of palpation or that kind of exam. And it was just a matter of pushing at the right place at the right time and being like, wait a minute, something's a little bit off here. Let's right. investigate this a little bit further. Or the dog reacts in a way. She turns her head around and looks at you or maybe she squinches up a little bit when you press on the, the sore place. Exactly. And this is a muscle that's, that's underneath where you would typically be pushing on a dog. So it was really 
it wasn't something that I would have thought of right off the bat. Right. So, fortunately, I work in a place where I have a lot of people that are extremely smart and pick yes. up on things like that, too, and know to look for it. So she had to... Not that. So. Right. You're in the ICU, which is a pretty cool job, too. So she had two weeks of rest and then physical therapy that included these underwater treadmill exercises and swimming two to three days a week. Now, out in the Hamptons and other places across the country, Rummy's Beach Club, um, SS Aquadog is in East Hampton. There are people that do the, the swimming, which is great. How rare is it? I wanted to find underwater treadmill. That's the, I mean, that's a beautiful piece of equipment, but probably there aren't many of them around. Well, they're actually becoming more, more, more popular. Oh, good. There's more development and research, and it's becoming more of, of a trend in mainstream to be going through things like physical therapy. It's kind of been on the back burner in veterinary medicine up until probably the last 10 to 15 years, where it's really become a growing part of veterinary medicine. And these kinds of physical therapy places are becoming more well-known and more popular, and they're popping up at different places across the country. And they're really offering more to like the senior canine group and for sports injuries and things like that, where it, it shows you that an injury doesn't have to necessarily end a career if it's a sport dog or that you can make them more comfortable if they're a senior dog. And also keep them more active, which is, you know, you and I found each other through Linda Hedich, who's been on the show because she's in the Doc Dog Hall of Fame. She's also actually a really famous uh, newscaster down in Southern California. But she had started using Actify on her old dog, Tessa, who in addition is a cancer survivor and no spring chicken. And I understand that you met her at the Doc Dogs Rules Committee meeting in Denver, Colorado. I'm like, really? You went to a rules committee meeting? You are really dedicated to your sport. But I know you were already yes. on yeah, which is awesome. I mean, that's every sport that's all about volunteering and people are doing it for the passion of it. They need people like you, especially really, you know, very well-trained people, medical technicians, medical experts. Um I guess what's interesting to me is you are already on a glucosamine supplement, and I've always recommended everyone to use a glucosamine with MSM or chondroitin supplement, but there's something about this Actify that sort of takes it to the next level, and this had been true for Tessa. I understand she recommended it to you, and Mercedes, who was coming along okay with her therapy, kind of like got back to normal sooner, or you'll never know for sure, but it seemed like it was something that, that really worked for her, right? Yes, it did. And she's she's the biggest thing with her supplements or anything that has to do with her food is she's a very picky eater, which has been a challenge from the very start with her as a puppy. She's not a dog that's very food motivated, which is kind of how we ended up in dock diving because she's very toy motivated. If you give oh, her a ball, you have her complete attention. <laughs> so she was she was a challenge for me with that. But with the with the Actify, it's very palatable, it's very tasty. She really likes it. She sparks it up right away. I put it on our food when I feed her in the evening, and she eats that first before she even eats her food. So, Which is unusual um, for a picky one. I mean, I had an, an older dog who got more and more and more crippled, and it didn't matter how careful you were to think you'd put the pill well inside the big bowl of delicious, hot, steaming, honest kitchen and added meat. He would actually find his way to eat his way around it. So I do know with picky takers of things how hard it is myself because Jazzy, who's my old, very rickety, crotchety old lady who actually came from Southampton Shelter 10 years ago now. She's 12. She she looks like she's 112. It's just she had ACL tears. <laughs> and I didn't know about all this rehab. I wish I'd known about all these things that probably she would have rehabbed better and not 
not gotten the arthritis. But I use the squishy ball of Actify, flatten it out like a pizza, and put the pills inside and then wrap it back up in a ball. And otherwise, it would be a fight and a struggle every day to get the pills down. So I'm grateful for that. But you're now hoping to get invited to the Doc Dogs 2015 World Championships. Explain to the rest of us, A, what does it mean to qualify? Is it like um, a fancy dog show where you have to win so many championships to be invited to to uh, even get into, let's say, Westminster or one of the really big confirmation beauty contest dog shows? Or is it something else? I mean, and also, is this thing televised? I think we'd all really like to see it. I understand that some of this is now being televised. So fill us in on, you know, what does it take to be invited? It's obviously a big, uh, a big honor. Well, yes, it is a big honor because they take the top dogs. So when you're going to compete in the world championships, you're competing against the top dogs in your division. The really nice thing about dog dogs is that it's split into different divisions so that even the dog that jumps the shortest jump of 9 feet 11 can still get an invite to the world championship. So it doesn't necessarily mean that your dog has to jump 30 feet in order to get invited. So, but you're still competing against the other dogs that are in your division. So if you jump nine feet, you're competing against other dogs that jump nine feet too. And does it depend so on her, the size of you, the dog? I mean, there's also divisions based on the size of the dog, right? I mean, I know there's a Yorkie. I've seen these pictures of this Yorkie flying through the air with the greatest of ease. <laughs> I mean, it looks different than a boxer or a lab. It looks like someone kind of hurled the, the Yorkie because so little, but he hurled himself. It is based on yeah. the size of the dog too? There is a lab dog division, which is for dogs that are under a certain height at the withers. But I will say that I have seen very tiny dogs. I know that there's a dog out of Georgia named Seeker that he's, I've watched him jump over 20 feet. Um, Whoa. There's a little Pomeranian somewhere that does the same thing. So just because they're little doesn't necessarily mean that they're only going to jump a short distance. Those dogs that have the drive to do it, they're off that dock and they're in the air, and then they're they're just going for it. They're it's just so cool. In the air and it's so just cool. They're doing everything they can. I, have yeah, you ever seen? Have you ever seen a really good movie made about it? I have the Dog Film Festival coming up. I wish that someone had made a great little documentary about it. I bet there must be one. You you guys probably all salivate over these things, right? Yeah, we do. I mean, we all, uh, my whole entire Facebook feed and everything is all full of dog diving stuff. And as the season <laughs> progresses, it, it's video after video. And it's funny because everybody's getting kind of bored right now because there's not a lot of events going on in the wintertime. So there's a lot of stuff that are videos from last year that are popping up now. You oh, know, how January, funny. February and it kind of, it gets you excited for the new season and it gets you excited to, you know, think about what your goals are for this season as far as competition wise and everything. So, um, well, if, if you become, that. if you become friends with Lita Hedich from, from California and you're from Tennessee and you're all trying to get to the Doc Dogs World Championships, which is, which is held where the World Championships? It's being held in Dubuque, Iowa. Oh, my Lord. Fortunately, it, it, it isn't an indoor facility because it is in November. So aye, aye, aye. it does get to be a little chilly, but it's the doctors does a great job with, you know, making sure that the environment and everything is good. They had right. heated floors last year. So wow, nice. So became a little bit heated, too. Yeah. So it makes it a pretty even playing field because there's some dogs that really don't, my dog included. She does not like to jump into cold water, but she doesn't really have any hair or body fat right, are really right. super insulated so we like that and I think there's <laughs> a lot of other people that really like that part of the world championship last year too so 
That is really cool. We'll be there in November. Well, it must be hard to to compete against, you know, a world champion that's in the Hall of Fame. But what the heck? I mean, Mercedes could be in the Hall of Fame herself before long. (laughs) You never know, right? I mean, (laughs) you'll never know. And and she's recovered from her injury. Um, Before we run out of time, is there some place we'll all be able to watch Doc Dogs? Is it shown on, I don't know, the USA Network or something? Or do you not know till closer to the time? There, there has been in the past. They have been on the outdoor network, um, and I know that several years ago they were on ESPN. I'm not really sure what the head office has planned as far as you know getting TV broadcasts or anything like that. But I know that you know my family and lots of other people that you know are not able to attend the events and watch. And as everybody progresses through the season, they would love to see it televised. But there is some um, some video on YouTube and the Ustream, the live broadcast out there, some people that are live broadcasting from their phones. Thank you, technology, for coming that far. (laughs) You're right. It is. It's amazing. Turns everybody into a field reporter, right? Well, we wish wish Mercedes the greatest of of good luck, and obviously she's completely mended now, and now you know what to do. If her jumps get a little shorter, you're going to get her some rehab and some physical therapy and keep up the Actify and the glucosamine. Thank you so much, Becky. It's great to talk to you. Keep up your wonderful work at the University of Tennessee and, and give give my best from, from Dog Talk to, to all the great vets there and all the vet techs. You guys are a really great team. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's been a pleasure. Take care. I'll be right back after this quick word with, uh, who's coming next? Amy, no, sorry, Monica Tureen and Hospice Thanatology. We'll be right back. This show is supported by Vectra and Vectra 3D, the safe and effective parasite treatments you put on your pet's skin every month to create an invisible shield that repels and kills parasites on contact. Parasites that are a health hazard to all members of your family. Vectra is the anti-flea topical treatment that kills all three life cycles of the flea. Vectra 3D is the anti-tick protection, only for dogs, not intended for cats, but after the two-hour drying period, they can be around a dog who's been treated. Vectra is waterproof and safe for dogs, cats, and for the people in your family, too, with protection proven to last a full 30 days. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality pure omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils, which our bodies cannot produce but need on a daily basis. Omega-3 fatty acids EPA and DHA are natural anti-inflammatories used by the body for skin, bone, and joint health and for brain function. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness to provide their oils to people and their pets for optimal health on a cellular level. I am back with Dr. Monica Turin, who was suggested to me as a guest for this show by my wonderful new co-host on Holistic Vets, Dr. Judy Morgan, who is, in fact, a holistic vet, which is good given the name of that show. And she's very well-versed herself in, in all sorts of alternative modalities, integrative modalities like acupuncture and so forth. But she said to me that Dr. Monica is somebody really special. And when I read a little bit about her, I thought she sure is. So Dr. Monica from Ann Arbor, Michigan, thank you so so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me, Tracy. It's an honor. Well, what's the, the real um, interesting thing about what you do, you do a huge amount of, you, you are certified and do an enormous amount of holistic work, both certified in acupuncture and Chinese herbology and Reiki work. 
and you do house calls, which is fantastic because so few people, so few of us in this country have the privilege of having a wonderful veterinarian who has decided to come into our homes to help us keep our pets well. But one of your real specialties is as someone who helps people with death and dying of their pets. And it's one of those topics that in our society where we rarely see or speak about humans dying in the process of dying or having died, we we do face it with our pets and we don't quite know how. So would you talk a little bit about the Thanatology Association that you're a member of? You're certified in Thanatology, the many aspects yeah. of death and dying. When when you say that to somebody at a dinner party, so to speak, are they like, what? <laughs> what? You do what? I mean, everybody else would go, oh, can you help me because my dog's getting old or my kitty's really, you know, slowing down and I don't, I don't know how and when and where to make a decision and I hate playing God. And is thanatology just about pets, or is thanatology something that also refers to human death? So right now, the certification that I received was in human thanatology. There is some discussion about starting an association for veterinary thanatology, which would be wonderful. But right now, my certification actually is in human thanatology, um, which is the study of human death. However, um, you know, with our pets, there is a huge amount of understanding that we need um, to be able to help their pet parents. So there's a lot that does translate from human thanatology over into um, veterinary, into the veterinary world. And well, so, I, I um, would even to... say, Dr. Monica, just to interrupt for a moment, that you sure. can't really be a thanatologist for a pet because they don't speak our language. So in the end That's of the correct. day, the human is the one that you're there for as a doctor that when their exactly pet correct. is dying. So whether you're helping yep. somebody with their aged parent in a nursing home or their beloved child with cancer, it's it's always the human that you're talking to, no matter who is the is the one who's who's dying, and you're usually talking to their family members, right? Yep, that is absolutely the, the case, absolutely. So while I did learn a lot about the process of dying, which does help me with the pet, a huge portion of what I learned in getting that certification was how to help the pet parent, because that is exactly right, Tracy. That is where the crux of this is, and that's where people need help. And, and a lot of times we don't understand in our culture how to help those people. This is such a disenfranchised group of people, because not everybody understands how big of a loss this is. Um, you know, these, these pets are our kids. Um, they're a part of our family, and um, losing them is just huge. And well, so a lot of what I do is to try to support those pet parents. In a way, they're disenfranchised. On the other hand, it's a gigantic population because every single one of us that owns a pet, our pets are probably going to predecease us, other than my 96-year-old father who's Correct. still going strong and has an African gray parrot who's going strong. But other than that, <laughs> every time we adopt or buy a dog or a cat yeah. or a ferret or a rat, I mean, now that I had the show Exotic Pets, I'm like, I shouldn't really just only talk about dogs and cats. That's speciest of me. We know they're going to predecease us. So in their life, in our love, we feel and see their death and the loss. I feel as if the idea that somebody needed a grief counseling for a pet is something that's right. been around for a while but not been socially accepted and now is Correct. getting more acceptance. Yep. But what about, yep. given the fact that you're a house call vet, 
and that you not only do in-home euthanasia, which some of us are lucky enough to have even from our clinic vets, you have many months, weeks, sometimes even years, where you're seeing that pet and those people and helping them decide what is the quality of that pet's life and when has the end come? Because not very many dogs and cats will just die in their sleep without a huge, long, extended suffering. So how much of your work... Um, in thanatology has to do with the preparation for death. In other words, the dying process, which can be prolongated. A huge part of it has to do with that. And I I spend a majority of my time trying to help those parents come to an understanding of when it's time, Um, whether it is, you know, decided and, you know, a a decision about whether to euthanize or at the time that we have selected the death or whether it is a natural death. There are times when natural death can be an appropriate way for an animal to die as well. And that needs to be done under the guidance of a veterinarian. But certainly um, a huge portion of what I do is trying to help those parents and guide them to, to that decision. Um, and it's, it's very, you know, varies a lot in terms of trying to, to make that decision because a lot of times it isn't just about the physical. A lot of times, right. it's, you know, the decision about that pet and uh, is a lot, and a lot of emotions involved in that. You know, maybe that pet helped them through a divorce. Maybe that pet helped them through graduation, through medical school, through a PhD program. And so a lot of times it's not just about losing the pet as a companion but losing that pet through a lot of emotional reasons. And so it's, it's, it's really very, very difficult and be very, very complicated and can be very complex in terms of making that decision. So that certification that you have in thanatology, uh, people are, are getting more and more familiar with the concept of hospice being available for people. Right. I've only learned about it. A friend of mine recently became a volunteer hospice uh, visitor, I forget what the proper word is, for humans. And right, she'd right. never been a volunteer at anything that I'd ever known of, but it, it somehow appealed to her. She's getting older. She's in her mid to late 70s, and death doesn't, quote, unquote, scare her, but she thought she could be of use. And it turns out, and I don't know, is this in every state, Monica, that at least in the state of Massachusetts where she is, that hospice care is provided by by services that are all lined up with nurses and psychologists and other sort of support mm-hmm. people, and a certain percentage of the time devoted to the person and family that's dealing with death has to be volunteers. Absolutely. Is that right, that volunteers, ha- a civilian, so to speak, needs to be part of it? Um, in some states, that is correct, yes. So that's curious. I mean, that's something I, it really surprised me. Funny and interesting way of looking at death. How much does have you discovered, does people's own personal religious beliefs get in the way, and I'm saying this in a biased way as an atheist, does it get in the way of them making a decision in the best interest of oh, the pet? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, religion plays a huge part of making this decision, and so does culture. Um, religion and culture plays a huge part in, in their decision-making, whether they would like to have a natural death, or they want euthanasia, whether we want to use drugs, whether they want intervention, do they want cremation, do they want a burial? Um, you know, all those decisions, religion and uh, culture, play a huge part in that, and that's where it makes my job very, very um, interesting um, on the one part, and sometimes very difficult, because sometimes I have 
have to um, respect those decisions and I have to learn how to advocate for that animal if I feel like those decisions that they're trying to make is not in the best interest of the pet and to try to work around that. And so sometimes it does make it very difficult. Um, but, you know, I try to be cr as creative as I can. Um, there are ways around it and sometimes that's the nice thing about having all those extra modalities that I have because perhaps they don't want um, medication, but perhaps Reiki would be okay and perhaps acupuncture is okay. And so I'm able to use those other modalities to um, advocate for that pet. So you can use your your more alternative or less Western medical Correct. to relieve suffering, but what about the actual right. decision to put a pet to sleep? Are there mm -hmm. people whose religions they feel I doubt it's written in anybody's, you know, uh, biblical text, so to speak. You can't put your pet to sleep. This is a kind of new idea. It doesn't really go back to the origins of various Judeo-Christian or Islamic or Buddhist uh, religions. I shouldn't have thought. I don't think it was an option way back. But if they said it goes against my religion to put a pet to sleep, that would be, I don't know, I'm making this up, taking God's place. Is there any way that you can, what can you do about that? I mean, we know that in hospice for humans that people, either the sick person or having given their wishes to their family, when they get more mm -hmm. and more ill and suffering more and more, there is a way for that person to take an awful lot of morphine, as I understand it, so that they're they're easing their own way out of this life, if you will, with a, call right. it an overdose, an awful lot of morphine. And in states right. where right to die doesn't yet exist, that's, I think, one of the things that is sort of accepted practice, I think. I, I, I don't know this. With, with dogs and cats, you can't just sort of give them an overdose of a pain medication, right? You don't necessarily give them an overdose of a pain medication, but natural death is becoming a much more accepted way for pets to die. Um, and actually, it's something that I actually really try to encourage people to consider um, in certain situations, depending on what the disease process is. And so if an owner does have a religious reason for not wanting euthanasia or a philosophical reason for not wanting euthanasia, then I talk to them about natural death, and I tell them this is what it's going to look like, and I have to help you with this. And so we are in constant contact, continue with contact by email, by phone, um, kind of through the entire process, and I hide them. And we do do pain medications. We do all the alternative um, modalities such as Reiki and acupuncture. Um, I do long-distance Reiki. I help them with um, different things like we do um, essential oils. We do different types of things to try to help make that natural death as peaceful as possible. So there is a way for natural death actually to be peaceful. Um, I don't think that euthanasia is always the only answer. I think natural death can be a really beautiful way for a pet to die. Um, and so I try to help those people so that that can describe what Describe what natural death would mean. My, my old guy, Scooby-Doo, basically died of a broken heart. He just, after his younger mm -hmm. brother, Teddy, got very, very right. sick. Um, and we had to, he had to be put to sleep in the, in the specialty right. place where he was just getting sicker and sicker. And within, and I don't you know. Do you know that that actually is a physiological response? No, I, I'd like to talk about heart. that because I'd, I'd like yeah. to talk about about the issue of I've ne I've always wondered and now I'm beginning to hear from other species caretakers that it's important for the pets that are alive to see the one who dies. Yes. Explain why so that important. matters because since Scooby never got to see Teddy 
die, but he was gone and there right. was so much grief in the house. He just gave up. He didn't want to stand up anymore. He didn't yeah. want to lift his head. Yep. He didn't want to eat. Yep. So he was on his way to quote unquote natural death. Now, what? first right. of all, let's talk about what would that have been if I didn't have the vet come over and do the two shots that are the kind of traditional two shots. What would natural right. death have looked like? Probably for your dog, it would have looked, um, it would have continued that trajectory that you had seen start. It would have continued. And so there would have been a slow progression and decline where the, the appetite would have gone away, the water intake would have gone away, and slowly there would have been um, a shutdown of the organs. And so you would have seen a decrease in breath, um, you would have seen a decrease in his mobility, and then eventually he just would have slowly just kind of gone away. Um, it's not always like that. It varies a lot from patient to patient depending on what the disease process is, which is why it's so important to have a veterinarian right. guide that process um, because it's not always appropriate. Um, and there are some diseases where I do say, no, I'm sorry, this this particular disease, natural death, is not an appropriate way. Too much to suffering involved, let's say. Um, exactly, exactly, yeah. So tell so, us about, um, about our pets seeing the one who has died before yep. he or she is taken away to be buried or cremated. So I've seen both. Uh, I've seen both ways. So I worked in a clinic for 13 years, um, and in those situations, obviously, in both cases, owners did not bring their pets to the clinic. And so, um, and but then should they? But, but say, should what they? Do I do? But Dr. Monica, yes, should they? Should. They, they should bring their should. other pets with they them. They should I've... bring their other pets yeah. with them, yes. Yeah. Um, and the reason that's so important is because now that I've seen what I've seen is that um, those other pets need to witness it. They need to yes. understand what has happened. And even if those pets only come into the room for a brief time, sniff the body, and leave, that is so important. They have to understand it and witness it in their own way. And they get it. They really do get it. Um, and even if they don't walk into the room and then walk away again. We don't need to force them to spend time with the body. We don't need to do anything like that. All they need to do is literally just be in the same room. They understand it. They can smell death. They understand in their own way, but it is so, so important. And I've seen both sides of it now where I've seen pets that have had siblings or other um, house, housemates, if you will, right. that they have not seen the body and not known that that other pet has died. And then they're looking for them and done some of the things that your pet did where they don't eat, they don't, you know, they don't interact, they don't integrate, um, they just don't do well. And then I've seen the other side where they actually have actually been there for the euthanasia. And yes, they still do grieve. I'm not saying that they don't, right. but they do much, much better. And they are actually able to handle the process in a much better way. Um, and it's just the difference has been astounding to me. I think it's, I think it's a, a real missing piece in both the training in veterinary school and then the message to pet owners because we right. don't know and we think oh we're going to be so emotional so what so be emotional that our other pets will yeah. catch on to that that's right. okay we can all be sad together my, my own vet told me recently of, of stories even of, of a horse and an oxen that she had at home that when one of each had to be put down because of severe illness and old age that the other one stayed by the grave like those things you hear about in Africa with you know the baby right. stays by they stayed by the grave, Dr. Monica, for they would just go over there and like hang out, like going to the cemetery. Yep. 
they it real and it was she said in one case it was near like a big piece of equipment like a tractor but they went over there it meant something to them and if if we yep. if we see this in Africa in you know nature uh, documentaries and we see the grieving of elephants why wouldn't our own pets have grieving that absolutely. they need to be given the respect to to have that opportunity to have that absolutely I just had a friend whose uh, whose dog was hit by a car yesterday oh my god and the other dog witnessed it, um, and the one that was hit by a car was at the hospital being taken care of. She took a picture of the dog that witnessed the accident down by the gate near the road. He was sitting there watching the road no. alone, just watching it, because he wanted to know where his brother was. Um, and. It was just incredible to me, but you know, it's it's just astounding. I mean, animals are so intuitive, so so intuitive, and you're absolutely right. Why would we not include them in this process? And we if you and if you are able to bring a body home to bury it, which I've done yes. a number of times, even in Beverly Hills, where it seemed even more absurd than places like the Hamptons, where it's not legal either. But if you have a big enough property, I mean, who's going to know and who's going to say anything? But in bringing the body home from the vets, because in in two cases, I simply couldn't wait for the vet to come for home euthanasia. I felt the animal was right. that much, you know, had had crashed, sure. if you will. And the other animals wanted to sniff, and my instinct was like, no, 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 don't do that. It was like, I, but I knew that was a wrong instinct. It helped them. Right. They saw the body, and then I shooed them away while we were digging a grave. But actually, it was good that they got that sniff because they knew right away. Yep. They, they, if they know that a yep. turkey is roasting three houses away, they know when their own right. sibling <laughs> isn't alive anymore. It must smell different to them, right? That's exactly right. And I encourage people that if the veterinarian for some reason does not want the dog present in the room, you can leave the dog in the car if the weather is okay to do that. Right. Or the other option is, you know, you could always bring the dog back home or cat home, um, allow your other pet to witness that body, and then bring the, the animal back to the vet if necessary. So you can do that transportation back and forth. And Even though it's, it's, it can be hard on us emotionally, it really serves a purpose it for really other animals. It's important. It is so important. It really, really is important. Well, I so think I wouldn't let this is yeah. I wouldn't let anything impede that. Well, this is great advice. We definitely want you to come back another time on the show. You have so many things that you specialize in, and this this particular topic is one that we've only scratched the surface of, and it's one that everybody needs to just embrace. Uh, that death of our pets yes. is part of our life with our pets. It's going to be something we have to deal with, and there's no point being squeamish or putting our heads in the sand. It's okay to embrace it and make it act. Actually, uh, you know, an integral part of our love and their life with us. It's just part Absolutely. of the continuum, right? So, Absolutely, and, and it can be so rewarding. And, and for everybody. I mean, it teaches us all a lot of life lessons about grace and who knows what else. Well, anybody That's in Ann Arbor, exactly Michigan right. is, is very, very lucky to have Monica Tureen in their neighborhood. And we're very grateful, the rest of us around the country, to learn from you. And, and I think a lot of us will make different end-of-life plans for our pets after what you've explained to us. Thank you so much, Monica. Great to talk to you. Hope to have you back on the show soon. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you. We'll be right back after this quick word. This show is supported by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who has created many different low-dust litters for the health of all members of the family, for the special needs of every cat, from kittens to old kitties, and long-haired and those with out-of-litter box problems who can get back in the box with Cat Attract Litter. 
Precious Cat's new litter, Touch of the Outdoors, is made with field grasses grown in their own fields, bringing the natural scent of the outdoors to provide environmental enrichment for indoor cats. This show is also brought to you by Vivimune Chews, a natural supplement using Oxy-C Beta, a new active ingredient based on oxidized beta-carotene found in foods like red and orange vegetables. Vivimune is a chewable that has been scientifically proven to support immune function in dogs and cats with the main benefits to joints, skin, and digestion, usually seen within a month. Modern life creates many stressors on a pet's immune system, which is further challenged as they age, and Vivimune can help pets lead the healthiest possible life. I am back with my good friend and a great friend to this show from the very first day, Amy Sadler, who invented the company, the idea, the concept called Dogs Playing for Life, in which she goes to shelters around the country and shows the shelter people how to let dogs be free together safely and learn how to play and learn how to be their best selves. And also helps to evaluate what that dog's real self is. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thank you for coming back again after you helped with my 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 sadly um, truncated readoption of my four-year-old wine several weeks ago. One of the things that we talked about and I think is very instructive for everybody else is the idea of, and then you chastised me for calling it temperament testing. Apparently, that's like very rude. We don't even use that that phrase anymore. So I guess I have to rewrite the dog Bible. That's how much things have changed. We on the outside think that dogs are temperament tested in a shelter to find out what they're nice about and what they're not nice about. This has evolved, right? This is not the exact way they're doing this anymore by a little, a little rubber hand and a kind of a checklist. Yeah, it's evolved so much since I've been involved in sheltering. And uh, I think the, the takeaway at this point, the reason that it changed from temperament testing to behavior evaluations is the common terminology now within the industry, is that the original notion when they came on the field, I don't know when exactly it was, but it was within my time in sheltering when they were really starting to come through and become mainstream, is that if you put the animal through these, these subsets of tests, it will reveal the animal's true temperament. And temperament cannot be modified. Uh, behavior can, but not temperament. And it will really tell you, this one's adoptable, that's not, this one's not. Um, that is not supported by behavioral scientists or anybody in the industry now, that, that specific notion. The hope for behavior evaluations now is that uh, shelters can use them as an equal measurement tool. So if you apply the same situation to all the animals in your care and you see how they handle that situation, you can tell which ones need a little extra support, which ones are seriously concerning. You know, some of that can be revealed, but it'll help you allocate your resources well to the, the animals in your care. And that's the best purpose or the best use of behavior evaluations at this time. Um, for our shelters, since they did not turn out to be, the scientists could not come away telling us these validated tests will predict this for you. It, it was so far off the mark of being reliable at that level of what we wanted. What we really wanted was somebody give me the easy answer. Right. This one's adoptable, this one's not. And I hate to say it, boy, has there been tons of money spent on trying to get there. And they just can't give us that answer. So behavior is a moving target. You know, these are, these are, uh, I guess animals, you can also you know? say there's been a lot of animals put to sleep unnecessarily prematurely based on this. Yes, sadly. Sort of like right. the death so, sentence for, for not at, for based on a quick checklist test when a dog is very stressed and first arrives at a shelter, 
That's the that's like a kid the first day at school you give him his IQ test or his will he be friendly with strangers test, and yep. you know they're kind of like a deer in the headlights type of thing, right? right? So sadly, without this ever having been the intention by those that created these tests, right? And I had the privilege of sitting on advisory committees with these with these uh, geniuses. The intention was never for that to be the case. The intention originally was if Lassie showed up at the shelter and seven days were up, that Lassie would be identified and given a chance. And if Cujo was up the kennel, uh, Cujo would be let go. And so it wouldn't well be an issue of time. If well Lassie said. came in on day seven, Lassie's gone. Yes. Nobody picks up Lassie. That was yes. the original purpose to actually provide some some reason to, okay, if you got to let somebody go, let this one go, not that one. Right. And, if you were, if you were that, stuck for time, because that was your parameter in those days. Right. So many days and out. But sadly, I think what ended up happening inadvertently, because I think as human beings, you want that easy answer. You don't, you don't want to make that. Nobody that goes into sheltering, in my opinion, goes into animal sheltering specifically because they are going to enjoy killing animals. Hardly. I mean, I think that's, Hardly. maybe we see that in the movies, right? Right. But I don't yes. think people, you know, maybe people, it's hard work. Maybe people yes. lose fight in the process, but I don't think that's where people ever started. So, you know, people didn't want to have to, it's hard to make those calls. It's hard to get that done. So sadly, I think what happened is the behavior evaluations became more of a culling tool for many facilities. So what we're looking at in the industry now is, okay, let's, let's say loudly and clearly that these are not accurate culling tools, right. they're not accurate predictors of how a dog is going to behave in the shelter to a home environment. But you can use them to serve you well under some circumstances, but let's not come to ultimate conclusions based upon these. Right. This is not how you're going to make a life and death decision. It's how you're going to make the way you manage that dog in the shelter. What you're going right. to, what, what makes that dog safe or unsafe for the handlers in the shelter and what areas you might be able to help the dog overcome some issues even. Yes. And, and to help guide your adoption. But we are, we are what we've decided to do since the scientists kept telling us, hey, we can't give you the answer we think that we can, uh, we decided to stop putting as much resource into a formal behavior evaluation. In other words, taking two people and putting them in a room for 20 to 25 minutes per animal for the setup and the breakdown and everything else. I preferred in my programs to have my have that time of those people put to working with the animals. Since I didn't think the evaluation was giving me what I needed anyway, I was behaviorally resourced. So even if a dog failed the behavior evaluation, we would have worked with them regardless. Right. So instead, what we did is we tried to be smart about, we still evaluate our dogs, but we've realized that in the process of our lives with them in the shelter, we get most of those things attended to. In other words, if there's an examination on intake, there's where you find out if the dog is struggling with handling issues. Right. If, if they, when they first arrive in the shelter, if when we're feeding them in the kennel, we step in and step out with an assessor hand, move the bowl around a little bit, we can at least assess if this dog is safe for our staff and our volunteers to go in and out and to feed them in the kennels, right? So there's, when they go to play groups with us, boy, that's, we're going to go on that, not by this on-leash assessment anyway. We threw that out a long time ago. So throughout our daily process, the volunteers going in and leashing up these dogs and taking them for walks. If they're on-leash reactive, that will be revealed. Right, so, right. You don't have to the set them up with, a, yeah. with another dog walking by or a rubber dog walking by. Right. It's a very, it, you know, you're just being logical. You're taking all I the components of this. Yes. I wanted to be efficient and I want to get the best bang for my buck out of anything that I'm doing in sheltering because you're working triage all the time. So if I want to help the most animals and do the best by my community, I've got to be smart and I've got to be efficient. So we reallocated our resources from the, the formal behavior evaluation to doing it via a checkpoint system through our process. 
Well, and, we, and, and very importantly, we have created adoption follow-up programs that if you, we don't know exactly what's going to happen when this dog goes home. We're willing to support you in trying. If anything comes up that has anything to do with you needing to surrender this animal back to us, if I need to send a trainer to your home, I'm going to do it. If I need to plug you into my classes for free, I'm going to do it. If I'm going to let you come in and do an assessment here, if we have to go out and walk around the block in your neighborhood and see what's going on, we do that. So we, instead of having my like two people in that room, you know, for four hours out of a day, whatever it may have been, right. instead, I now have the savings account of that time to apply to adopt. Well, that's a nice way of needed. looking at it. That's right. a great way. So but of course, not all shelters can do that. I remember Allison Denley back when we were talking about the Lime Runner that I had to surrender to the shelter. She said there's lots of shelters that won't take a dog back after you've adopted it. They either can't right. or won't. So you're right. like out on your own, you know, SOL, as they as they say. I guess mm-hmm. one of the things that we some of us have an image of from watching footage or something is this rubber hand. And the rubber hand, mm-hmm. I remember talking to you about this on this show years and years ago, seemed to me that most of us would say, quite realistically, that our own dogs, our own theoretically nice, well-behaved, trusting dogs, if we were to jam a rubber hand into their dish while they're eating and pull it away, they might react negatively and that it seems an unnatural thing to do because why would you pull a dog's dinner dish away? Why would you ever do that? Can you speak to that whole issue? It's not that complicated. Let's go back to the way I was raised. Don't bother the dog when it's eating. Thank right? you. If, you're, if your child exactly. gets bitten because they were messing with the dog when, when I was growing up, right? They, Me too. Me not too. that I want children, but I have children. You've seen my children crawl around, crawling around on the ground among That's right. 30 dogs, right? Yes. Um, and I, it's very important to me. Safety is very important to me. But these are animals. These are not playthings. They're not babies. They're, they are playthings. We enjoy playing with them, but they're not babies. They're not people. This is normal. Resource guarding yes. by itself is not aberrant behavior. It is normal behavior. It's perfectly normal. So, But there's extremes to it that become dangerous. That's a different ballgame. But, you know, this whole notion that if a dog growls, snarls, or muzzle punches a rubber hand in a bowl in the context of a shelter environment and saying that that dog, therefore, is not an adoption candidate and should be euthanized is just unfounded, is not, you can't back that up with behavioral science or you can't back it up. I mean, or even logic or even call. basic, you know, you can have a low IQ and realize, well, if you gave a dog his dinner, especially in a highly stressful situation with many other dogs barking and running around, where imagine yourself in prison in this strange environment and you're finally given your bowl of porridge or gruel or whatever you get in, you know, in some horrible, you know, camp that you're stuck in, wouldn't you try to gobble down your food and not let anybody near it? Because you're trying to survive. So to yeah, think that that's, will, that that's a, some a, will and some won't. Right. But the bottom line is that it's not aberrant. Right. The dog wants to protect its resources. Now, the level of aggression, the extremity of it, are they going to cross the room and attack you? (laughs) To me, that's really not just resource guarding. That's another issue. Right. That's a dog that's got, you know, that is not connecting the dots, is not responding proportionally to the feedback it's getting from its environment. There's another, there's some other trouble at hand. The resource guarding just happens to be a trigger. What about all these things on Pet Finder that say not with any children under X age? Is it really the fact that children under X age, whatever age is put in there, 8, 12, 16 even in some cases, is that because a shelter is saying you don't actually have your children trained correctly and taught correctly to not roughhouse with a dog, pull a dog's ears or tail, mess with a dog, dog's bone when he's chewing it or his dinner when he's eating it? Is it really a way of saying we don't trust 
in a funny sort of way, you probably never thought of it this way, but is it a way of saying, we don't trust you to have trained your children correctly, like you and I were brought up, leave the dog alone? I think that all of that stuff, again, things start for usually, they start for two reasons when you have policies that are put in place like that, that are not, that you can't really validate. Like, again, it doesn't make sense because I could have a very savvy five-year-old and you could have an, a 12-year-old that's never been around animals and has right. no sense around them. Right. So it's really such a silly notion. I think what we what, what the industry was shooting for was some kind of guidelines for safety. If you had a big, boisterous dog that was like a bull in a china shop and you've got a toddler, you're asking for that toddler to be knocked down. The silly part is that I would assume most families that come to me have more interest in keeping their child safe than I do. So I think there's a little <laughs> bit of a condescending, a yes. condescending position that we've yes. taken there that yes. I don't know what makes us ask, uh, experts. The funniest thing about the big joke about animal welfare is it's full of a bunch of people that don't like other people, right? That's why that's perfect. It's so animal. funny. That's really well so. said. It's true. And, and they develop, I've noticed in a lot of rescues and shelters, a development of, of bitterness towards humans, anger at them, judgmental, critical. Yeah, people just toss these dogs away. People are irresponsible. People don't have a heart or these animals would never be here. It seems a little extreme. But remember when you and I first started talking about the unfortunate incident, incident that you had, uh, you were feeling some resentment towards the woman. I said, I hey, was. Possibly, you're right. right. You're right. You went through the same exact yes. experience. So what happens yes. at shelters is that shelters, you know, they adopt out a, a pet that maybe they've had for a while trying to find the right home and the person turns around, you know, five or seven days and, and, and heartbreaks, it's heartbreaking. And they bring the, the animal back sometimes for what seems to us like, really? Right. Like the, it, right. It, silly, like, um, silly, silly reasons. And you get that, that very defeated feeling of that well, you just can't count on people. Why can't they stand right. by the animals? Just a little bit more, just give them a little bit more chance. And so you end up with disappointment over disappointment, and then unfortunately policies get made. Yes. And then you just have this vicious cycle. So the industry on the whole is looking to be much more collaborative between the adopters and the shelters so that this is a partnership and it's not me telling you or you hiding something from me. It's much more um, responsive and reactive, uh, much better better customer service. That's what we're looking to get to. What, what is it that you're looking for and how can we help? I think so, you know, we don't think of we on the on the receiving end. When, when you say industry, of course, it's an industry. It's the sheltering industry, but we don't think mm-hmm. of it that way. And and customer service, we are your customers, but but so are the dogs and the cats. So that's kind of mm-hmm. confusing. But I think that I'm hoping and I'm sure that when you talk to the people in the industry, the the workers on the ground, the boots on the ground, that they hear what you're saying because that's going to make for better communication between people about the four leggeds. If, the, if everyone mm-hmm. understands what their part in this is and if you have to bring a dog back to a shelter because it didn't work out and you gave it your best, maybe it's because that dog destroyed all your kids' toys. Well, my reaction, mm-hmm. being one quick to judgment, as everybody that's listened to the show for 400 shows knows, would be to say, <laughs> well, yeah, idiot, why are your kids' toys all over the floor? You know, right. of course the dog's going to pick them up. Why shouldn't he? But, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you just got a house where you can't pick up all the toys or you know, or a dog that really does go after all the kids' toys. It's it's easy to make Or they it, had a dog or they had a family companion that just didn't do those things. Right. And right, they want to replace right. the companion and they're looking for another dog that behaves just like, like the one that, that they're one. used to. Right. That's, that's something that we've, you know, the idea of a carbon copy of the dog you've got, there is no other dog like yours. Even if you wanted to do that cloning, which is completely off topic, and you wanted to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a dog just like Clara, 
There's only mm-hmm. one Clara. She could have the same DNA or genetic makeup and have a totally different personality. And really, mm-hmm. it's the personality that we are attracted to. I mean, people say they have They're a heart all... dog. That one dog, I think your pity was was probably maybe that dog for you, but maybe another. That one dog. No, that he, just... was, he was it. He was it. Cool he was. was the man. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was. You adored that dog, and you'd had so many before and so many after. Mm-hmm. And it's a personality issue. And th- there's they're one off. They are one of a kind. So when you lose a dog, whether it's your heart dog or your you know, second in line, you will never have another dog like that ever. And that's it's why a relationship. it's relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's the thing that so a so a temperament test, which doesn't exist as a phrase anymore, or a behavior evaluation is just a generalized bit of information. Uh, so there there's the one that the woman Sue Sternberg started with that I think is probably the one that may be the most misused or abused in the way that you're talking about. Yeah. Check out his mouth, check out his feet, check him out with the rubber hand. He's gone. He's a goner. It is sort well, of, a, most, of behavior evalu- most of the behavior pal- evaluation shares some of the components of that of Sue's original pet. I mean, I know there were others that were on, but hers became the most popular and uh, she was driving for those tests to really help um, identify dogs better. So they all have some. What about the ASPCA safer test? Same kind of idea. Yeah, and then the ASPCA, their cruelty investigation team, has another uh, behavior evaluation that they do. And oh, then I'll you be have darned. the C-bark test. And all the, there's, there's a whole bunch of them. They have uh, tons of them. They so, all have similar components to them, and the conclusion is about the same. None of them are going to give us that easy answer. So scientifically, what we're really wrapping up and saying is it doesn't matter which test you use, real life, the experience of the people in the shelter, um, is is how you're going to really get information that is valid and even then, it's not going to predict how that individual dog is going to handle moving into that particular home with those people and their pets. Right. You won't know. And even you if you try. have many of our animals are strays, we don't know anything about them. And even the ones that are surrendered, when we have surrendering history, even if we, you know, sometimes you get the feeling that is this person being straight with me? Because sometimes right. people surrender animals and they're not straight because they want their animal to have another chance and they feel right. guilty that the animal will be better than yes. somebody else. Sometimes, you know, they're, and sometimes they're being very straight with you and you've got really good, valid information. So you take that, even when you have history from people, that's not, that's a, you know, if, if a dog has done something, be it really well or really poorly, and people can report that to you, that, that's something really worth thinking about. And then you also consider how they did on their assessments or how they did while they're in your carry. That put it all together to decide what can we do for this animal next. What's the big you picture? You can't rely upon any one piece of it. Yeah, that's really true. And so I guess that as we wrap up, that's the message to people. You know, even right. if you buy a puppy properly from a good breeder and you think, oh, it'll be just like my other boxer, it really won't. It'll be a different kind of dog and they're each individual. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I just want to reiterate the idea since I immediately thought I should just get a puppy. I'll just get a golden retriever. They're so easy and they're not so emotional like Weimaraners. You don't have any guarantee that the puppy you get is going to turn into a swell dog. He's going to become whatever dog he was going to become, nature, nurture, what have you, right? Exactly, exactly. They're all individuals. So, you know, let's love them all and treat them as individuals. Yeah, and do the best we can by them and and not wrap anybody up with a bow. Amy, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you at the Dog Film Festival with the wonderful movie about your work that was on the Shelter Me program called Dogs Playing for Life. It's going to be really cool for people to see what it's like for a bunch of caged dogs to finally get a chance to be out in a pack and have you manage what to the rest of us be like, scary, and you mm-hmm. make it look really fun. So that's going to be something to look forward to. And, and anyone who, in hearing you on the show again, which we haven't for a while, is pretty eager to meet you and talk to you. 
We're hoping you'll be at the Dog Film Festival October 2nd at the Pooch Party and October 3rd at the festival itself. Hang out and give people some really great advice about their shelters and their dogs. Thank you so much, Amy. I hope to have you back soon on talk some more about dogs playing for life. Thank you. Take care. Thank you all for listening. It's really wonderful to be able to share all these ideas with you and for you to understand a lot of of what's going on in the sheltering world, what's going on in other parts of the dog universe. It's hard for us to know. We have our little microcosm of our little dogs and our little cats. And uh, and it's it, each, each world is a separate world within itself. So um, I'm glad that whatever I've learned, I can pass on to you. I hope you'll pass it on to friends and family that there is no guarantee. What you, what you see isn't necessarily what you get, and what you get isn't necessarily a finished product. We're, we're shaping and, and helping our animals have a good life and be part a happy, good part of our lives little by little. Thank you so much for listening. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk soon. <laughs>